Uh, we're going to be reading God's Word to go, together today in 1 Peter. It'd be nice if we could cover the whole book. We won't have quite enough time to do that. We're going to focus on chapters 1 to 4. Uh, and I think it's important for us to actually read the book. Uh, that may even be the best bit about today. Uh, so I'm going to read with you, for you, from 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, through to the beginning of chapter 2. And then I'll pray uh, and then we'll explore this part of God's Word together. So if you've got a Bible, please open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of their salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply, from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great grace and mercy that you have shown us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, that through him you have given us new birth so that we belong to a new family and we are heirs of a new world. And so we pray now as we reflect on this part of your word to us together that you would speak to us through it, that you would show us how rich your grace is to us in Jesus and that you'd help us to respond with trust and obedience. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, there's an outline of where we're going on page two of the booklet. Uh, if you found that, it'll tell us where you're going. Uh, and I want to talk by, uh, start by talking about unexpected fire. Uh, you don't usually expect to find yourself under attack on your birthday, do you? Especially not when you're 10, and especially not from your older brother. But that's what happened to my younger brother on his 10th birthday when I was organising the games. And we were playing pin the tail on the donkey. It was probably uh, pin the blasters on the rocket or something for a 10-year-old boy. I, I can't remember the details. And it was my job to get the things ready, so I, I pinned the blaster on the rocket over on the wall. And my brother, it was his birthday, so he was going first. So I blindfolded him, but you've got to test that the blindfold works, right? You don't want any cheating happening on the birthday party. And so I stood him there and I stood myself here and I intended to just flick in front of his face to make sure that he wouldn't flinch, to make sure the blindfold was working, but my flick went a little bit too hard and punched him in the nose and down he went on his 10th birthday in front of all his mates <laughs> and that was the end of the party. <laughs> you don't expect to find yourself under attack like that on your birthday, do you? And I wonder if we in the church in Australia have found ourselves in that kind of situation recently, something a little bit like that, under attack and not ready for it. Wow, where did that come from? Shocked about it. It certainly felt like that a little bit in the last little while, hasn't it? In the last few years, if you've been watching the news from around the world, you've seen shocking pictures of ISIS beheading Christians on the beach. You've heard reports of a gunman walking into a church in Charlestown in South Carolina and brutally murdering a bunch of people as they sat together in their Bible study. And differently, but with huge long-term consequences, we heard the US Supreme Court legalise same-sex marriage in all 50 states, effectively declaring that the Christian view of marriage is now out of date. And then closer to home, we've seen the Victorian Andrews government introduce legislation designed to limit the freedom of religious organisations to employ people on the basis of shared beliefs. In New South Wales, we've seen the Department of Education ban three books, three Christian books for use in scripture classes in schools because they taught the classic Christian view on sex. And we've seen, of course, last year the redefinition of marriage in the midst of loud public debates which have often presented the Christian view as not merely quaint or peculiar, but narrow-minded and repressive and bigoted and even dangerous. And maybe closer to home, there are things going on for you uh, in your family or school or personal life where you've, you've faced ridicule or isolation uh, because you belong to Jesus. 
For generations, the church in Australia has enjoyed an honoured, even a privileged position. But all of that's beginning to change. And I wonder if you've started to feel a bit like my brother on his birthday, a bit shocked by the, the change in the cultural temperature. There's a danger of making too much of this, and I don't want to make too much of it. In in many ways, by God's grace, we in the Australian church still enjoy a very positive relationship with our government and with our culture, with the wider culture, with Australian society. Certainly, we're not facing the same kind of physical violence like many of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so we're not being persecuted. I think that's too strong a word. But we are facing increasing pressure. The church in Australia is increasingly marginalised and presented as foolish and even seen as dangerous or evil. So often the words spoken about us condemn us. Uh, Have you heard these words? The church is outdated. The church is irrelevant. The church is on the wrong side of history. The church is narrow-minded. We're increasingly a church under fire. But of course, that's nothing new, is it? Uh, So were the churches to which Peter was writing way back in the first century. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers or exiles, some translations will have, in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Or verse 17 of chapter 1, live your lives as strangers or exiles, same word, in reverent fear. Or chapter 2, verse 11, where we're going a bit later, I urge you as aliens or strangers or exiles in the world, abstain from sinful desires. Peter's probably writing to Christians who've been expelled physically from the capital, from Rome, by the Emperor Claudius, who expelled all the Jews, including the Christians, out of the capital in AD 49. And so these Christians were probably exiles in a very literal sense. They'd been sent out of their homeland. And they'd been sent to what we call Turkey. Uh, That's where these places are. Uh, Those names you can't pronounce there at the beginning, in Asia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and Pontus. Uh, And the Romans had established colonies in each of those places. And they sent some of the expelled Jews and Christians to those colonies. And the colonies, these Roman colonies in what we call Turkey, were there to set up Roman values. Uh, People living according to Roman ways. People worshipping the Roman gods. And these Christian exiles had been sent there. And they didn't fit. Because they worshipped the one true God. And his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who'd been executed as a rebel against who? Rome. Worse, we learn in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that they were being persecuted, insulted just for bearing the name of Christ, suffering just for being Christians. And in chapter 3, verse 15, we see that some of them have been dragged before the authorities and forced to explain why they didn't worship the Roman gods or worship the Roman emperor or engage in the immoral practices that often went along with it. And so these early brothers and sisters of ours lived in a world where the Christian message was seen as foolish and dangerous. The words spoken about them condemned them. They were outsiders. They were seen as corrupt. One Roman writer said of the early Christians that they were atheists. You think, how can Christians be atheists? It's because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Another early Roman writer said that they hate the human race because they don't participate Uh, in the moral and religious system of the Roman world. They didn't toe the line. And so Peter says to them, they're undergoing, verse 6, all kinds of trials. Verse 7, they're being refined by fire. Or or chapter 4, verse 12, they're in a painful trial. Or, as some of the translations put it, they're undergoing a fiery ordeal. 
We all react differently when we're under fire of that kind, don't we? Some of us want to fight. Maybe you put yourself in that category. Some of us want to retreat, run away, find a Christian ghetto. Some of us tend to just go along with the flow and so compromise. Some of us want to give up on the faith. I I kind of see myself in all of those responses at different times. But God, through Peter here, shows us a better way. Uh, Peter, of course, knew what it meant to face pressure as a follower of Jesus and to fail as he was sitting around the fire there at Jesus' trial. And today, as we work our way through 1 Peter, we're going to focus on what God says to churches under fire through Peter, the apostle restored by the Lord Jesus and now leading these churches. And the good news that God has for us this morning is that even if this old world is against us, God has chosen us for new birth into a new family to be heirs of a new world. And so those are my three points if you want them and you'll see them there on the handout. And so I'm going to start by thinking about the new birth that God has given us and we'll spend the most time in this first point. So don't, don't get anxious if we're still going after a while and we're still on point one. This whole chapter, in a way, is about the new birth. It's there at the beginning, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. It's there again at the end, chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And so I want you to notice in this chapter five things about the new birth that God has given us in Jesus. And the first thing to notice is that God planned to give us new birth even before he created the world. Did you notice that? Verse 1. To God's elect, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I can see some babies here. Uh, So maybe some of you have gone through this process recently. But when young couples decide to start a family, often they plan ahead, right? Uh, They discuss it, they pray about it, they fight about it, at least that's autobiography here. They read some books, (laughs) they buy some necessary items, they see a doctor, Uh, they may plan for several weeks or or months or even years. What does Peter say about giving new birth, about God giving new birth to his children? God planned to give new birth to his children for an eternity, (laughs) before he created the world. In the long ages past, God the Father, Son and Spirit planned together to give new birth to his chosen people, knowing each and every one of us by name. And so Peter says that the world might reject you, that the world might cast you out from Rome, but if your faith is in Jesus, you can be sure that God has chosen you. God has taken you in. He set his affection on you even before he created the world. And so notice second about this new birth, it comes through God's mercy. It's God's mercy that gives us new birth. Verse 3, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. God did not choose to give us new birth because of anything in us. He didn't choose you because he foresaw your faith or your obedience or your perseverance. He didn't look down the ages of history and see you as a standout exemplar of the human specimen and say, yes, I'll choose that one. Uh, No, he chose you simply because of his grace and mercy. How else could it be? What child ever earned their birth? (laughs) It's just backwards, isn't it? 
Life is a gift, and it has to be that way, and it's no different with this gift of new birth from our Heavenly Father. And I hope you can see how freeing that is. You didn't perform in order to please your Heavenly Father so that he would look at how good you were and then choose you. And so you don't have to keep performing in order to stay in his good books or to earn his love. No, his, his love comes to you as the love of a father to a son or a daughter, free and unmerited. It's a beautiful thing. Which means you need to notice, third, that this new birth is to a new life that is full of hope. Verse 3, in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope. Some of the things you read uh, or you see on the TV will have you believe that Christianity is on the way out. They'll give you the impression that the church's cause is futile, that there's no future for us, uh, that the church is dead in the water, that we're on the wrong side of history. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. But that couldn't be further from the truth because he's given us new birth into a living hope. Uh, Though Rome has cast you out, Peter says to these readers, and sent you away from the centre of the empire, though you now occupy a marginalised place in society, though it seems like your your cause as the church is futile, God's new birth gives you hope that's, that's got a future to it because it's a living hope. It's a hope that won't disappoint you. It's a future that's secure and that's because fourth, it's grounded in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. New birth into a living hope, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're being rejected by Rome, Peter says, that's nothing new. Rome rejected your Lord before you. He was mocked and spat upon and beaten and strung up with a, on a cross. And did that stop God's plan for him? <laughs> no way. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. So Rome can do its worst to you Christians. Rome can marginalise you and cast you out and persecute you and kill you and that won't stop God's plan for you because he's given you new birth into a living hope grounded in the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And all of that, fifth and finally, has come to you through the gospel. Verse 23, jumping ahead a bit, you've been born again, there's the new birth again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter here quotes out of Isaiah chapter 40. It's a very famous passage, you you might remember it. It begins with those words, comfort, comfort my people. Uh, And do you know into what situation Isaiah spoke those words? He speaks them prophetically, looking into the future, into the time when God's people would be languishing in Babylon in exile. (laughs) And there's a gospel word that came to them through the prophet Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people because God is coming to save you. And Peter says, you've heard that same word, you Christians in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia, Uh, you Christians in Canberra, (laughs) you've heard that same word in the word of the gospel, God has come to save you. There's comfort because God is the one who is at work to save you. It was announced ahead of time, this word, through Isaiah the prophet, but now it's come to all its fullness in the good news about what God has done for us in Jesus. And so, yes, this old world may well be against you, but that's nothing new. 
the old world has been against God's plans from the beginning. Uh, so don't be surprised if you're suffering now all kinds of trials because that's just the way it's going to be. And cling on to this. In his great mercy, God our Father has chosen you for new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I hope you can see what that means for us. It means we don't need to look to the world around us to give us affirmation. We don't need to look to the world around us to tell us we belong. We don't need to look to the world to give us legitimacy or to say that we have a right to exist. You don't need to look to the world around you to give you nourishment, to give you life, because our Heavenly Father, who's given us new birth through His Son, will give us all we need through His Word. And so, Peter says, look to your Heavenly Father to feed you. Chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Don't know how much you know about newborn babies. Uh, some perhaps have not experienced yet the joys of having a newborn baby in the house. Some of you experienced that so long ago, you've kind of forgotten what it was like. We've had five in our house in the last 13 years, and I've not yet forgotten that when a newborn baby wakes up in the middle of the night, in fact, I was talking to somebody about this just before at 3 o'clock, uh, needing a feed, you know about it. Uh, and the whole house knows about it, in fact, and the neighbours know about it. <laughs> because... There's a little baby who can't talk and can't walk, can't control its bowels, can't sit up, can't look after itself, but it knows one thing. It knows it's hungry uh, and it knows what to do about that. Scream! <laughs> I need milk! Uh, because that's how milk is going to come. Mum's going to wake up, the baby will be fed, everything will be okay. And, and Peter says, be like that. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation what's the pure spiritual milk with the way to crave it's, it's the good news that was preached to us the good news that peter's just mentioned the word of god's grace in jesus uh, the old world is against you and part of the way it gets to you is through the words that it speaks to you right it'll speak to you words of distraction find your identity in what you buy Find fulfilment in new sexual experiences. Find purpose in your own autonomous self-determination. The world speaks to you words of condemnation, outdated, irrelevant, narrow-minded, bigoted. And so for the church under fire, we need to learn to be like newborn babies. We don't listen to those words, but instead crave the pure spiritual milk of our Father's word for us. Because just like for a newborn baby... Hearing our Father's word is not a luxury. It's a matter of survival. And so we need to tune into that word that matters, the word from our Heavenly Father, the word of His grace, the word through which we've been born again, the living and abiding word of God, the good news that was preached to us when we first believed. And we need to hear it again and again and again. Peter's talking here to Christians who've been Christians for three months and Christians who've been Christians for many years. And he says, all of you together, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. He said, just as the Christian life begins when you are born again by hearing and believing the good news about Jesus, the Christian life continues, doesn't it? 
as you grow up to maturity, how? By hearing and believing the good news about Jesus. You never move on from this pure spiritual milk. You never graduate from the gospel. You never go on to higher things. You never leave it behind. You only ever go deeper and deeper into the same good news. And so it's only in tasting and savouring the gospel that God speaks to us in his word that will survive in the faith, that will grow up into our salvation. So I've got to ask you, how are you going at drinking in the spiritual milk of God's word? Maybe like me, you need to pray and ask your heavenly father, Father, give me a craving for your word. Help me to drink it in so that I can survive and thrive as one of your children so that I can grow up into my salvation. This old world may be against you, but here's the good news. God has chosen you for new birth. That's the first big point. And I said we're going to spend the most time on it, and we did. Uh, but there's more here that we, we can't leave this behind without noticing. Because as everyone knows, new birth means a new family. And so Peter writes, chapter 1, verse 1, to God's elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Or verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us new birth. And therefore he encourages us, verse 14, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But instead, verse 17, call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially. You see how all the language of this passage is about belonging to the family of the Father. New birth into a living hope means we belong to a new family as children, brothers and sisters together, of our Heavenly Father. And of course, the world offers family belonging too, doesn't it? Uh, Like many of the great despots down through history, the Roman Emperor actually presented himself as a father. Pater Patriae, he called himself. Father of the Empire, Father of the Nation. Look to me, he proclaimed to everybody across the ancient Roman world, including these Christians living in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Look to me and I will provide you what you need. I am your father. Uh, we don't have anything that in your face uh, or that uh, you know, stark a claim in our society, but there are many groups, many movements in our society that promise family, community, belonging, inclusion, uh, and there's lots of good in them. But like what happened to our brothers and sisters in this situation in the ancient world, it's very clear what happens when we refuse to worship the gods of the age, isn't it? The gods of tolerance, the gods of any and every kind of sexual indulgence, the gods of individual autonomy and self-determination. When we refuse to worship those gods, we find ourselves not belonging anymore. We find ourselves being cast out, maybe not sent across the empire, like the the readers of Peter's first letter, but marginalised, pushed to the edges, politely ignored, because you're not worshipping our gods. And the two big temptations for us when we're in that situation as a church under fire is either, on the one hand, we give up and we allow ourselves to be conformed to the world around us, or, on the other hand, we allow the pressure from outside to fuel disputes within and we turn on each other. But God's given us new birth into a new family and so neither of those is an option for us. And so first we need to learn to reflect the family likeness, Peter says, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. 
For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Instead of being conformed to the world around us, we need to learn to reflect the family likeness. We love playing that game, don't we, when a new baby's born, of uh, trying to pick out which bits come from which parent. Oh, he's got dad's eyes and he's got mum's nose and that's Auntie Betty's ears, I reckon. I'm sure, I'm sure they're Auntie Betty's ears. We love kind of matching the baby up, don't we, with the family, tracing them uh, to various members of the extended family, showing the family likeness because we're eager to recognise that in the child. And so Peter says, as obedient children... Don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but learn to reflect the family likeness. Take your cues for how to behave, not from the world around you, but from your heavenly Father. Be holy as he is holy. Look to him. Listen to him as he speaks to you in his word. Second, though, when there's pressure to deform, uh, to conform, it's very easy to allow that pressure from outside to fuel disputes within to allow uh, Christians to turn on each other. And so we need to learn to love each other deeply because we all call on the same Father. Instead of turning on each other, we need to remember that God has given us new birth into his family together. Uh, And that's what Peter's saying in in chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. And so he continues, chapter 2, verse 1, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, of hypocrisy and envy and slander and every kind of evil. We mustn't allow the pressure from outside the church to fuel disputes and divisions within the church because we belong together as children of the same Heavenly Father. So love each other earnestly. This is the speech I make vainly at home often. <laughs> How many sisters do you have? Just one. So love her. She's your only sister. It doesn't work all that well, but Peter's making the same speech to us now, right? You are children of the same Heavenly Father. Love each other deeply from the heart. Get rid of everything that causes disputes and divisions. Do whatever it takes to stick together because God has given you new birth together. Uh, Yes, there are going to be things we disagree about and some of them are going to be important. Uh, But if we love each other, we're going to find a way of working through those disputes and those differences of opinion in a way that still embraces each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This old world may be against you, but here's the good news. God has chosen you for new birth and that means there's a new family. And that also brings us to the last main point, which is that God, our Father, has also chosen us for a new inheritance, to be heirs of a new world. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, there it is, that can never perish, spoil or fade kept in heaven for you. What we inherit from the world around us, from the culture in which we live, is ultimately futile. It's true because of God's common grace, there's lots of good things, uh, things to enjoy and things to give thanks for uh, in the culture in which we live. But ultimately, the godless way of life in the world around us is empty. Uh, It won't last That's why Peter says in verse 18, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. 
whether that's the empty way of Greco-Roman religion, with its superstitious beliefs and its meaningless rituals, whether it was the way of the Jewish tradition of the elders with its smothering of God's grace and its turning of God's good law into a burden, or whether it's the Australian culture with its complicated mix of anything goesism and rejection of authority and intolerance towards religion, what we inherit from our godless culture is ultimately futile. It's empty, Peter says. It's going nowhere. To follow the way of the world around us, to take our cues from the world around us, is to end up in a dead end. But not when we follow our Heavenly Father. When we have Him as our Father, there's an inheritance promised to us, verse 4, that can never perish or spoil or fade. You see, new birth into a new family means a new inheritance. In fact, our Heavenly Father promises us as Peter explains in his next letter to Peter, our Heavenly Father promises us nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new world where righteousness is at home, 2 Peter chapter 3. He promises to cleanse this old world with the fire of his judgment, to remove everything that's evil and to make it new again. And this inheritance, Peter says, is coming your way. It's utterly secure. Verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you. Which means, verse 5, it's ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter's talking about the revelation of our inheritance, of this renewed world that Jesus will bring with him when he returns. That's verse 7. It's going to become ours when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so he says, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Put your hope there. Because God's inheritance for his children is kept safe in heaven and Jesus is going to bring it down from heaven with him when he comes to make everything new. Uh, When I was a kid, my mum used to buy our Christmas presents. She's a very organised woman. About September every year was like clockwork. You know, she'd be going out to the shops on Saturdays and there'd be boxes and bags coming home. And there was a particular cupboard in her bedroom right up high where the presents went. But she was so organised, she wrapped them almost immediately. (laughs) So even if you got on the ladder, which I never would have done, but maybe my siblings did, and climb up the ladder, and drat, they're all wrapped up. But but when you climbed up the ladder, which I heard about from the siblings, (laughs) you'd you'd see the presence there with your name written on the wrapper. (laughs) And you'd know there it is, October, November, (laughs) December. (laughs) A present kept safe and secure, wrapped away with your name on it, waiting to be revealed. And then on Christmas Day, it would all be brought down and put around the tree and and finally you'd rip into it uh, and these great presents that you've been waiting for would be yours. The inheritance would arrive. And so Peter says, we're like that. Uh, A secure inheritance, kept safe in heaven. It's got your name on it. And it's waiting to be revealed at the last time when Jesus comes. So set all of your hope on that day. like children looking forward to Christmas. But it's also not Christmas yet, is it? We're still waiting to receive the fullness of that inheritance. And so that's why Peter says here in verses 6 and following, hang on, persevere through your trials, because God is perfecting them through you, making you ready for that day when you'll receive the inheritance. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may be proved genuine 
and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. You see, it's not Christmas yet. (laughs) There will still be trials. But the good news here is that the trials too are part of our Heavenly Father's plan for us. They're the way he's testing our faith. Like fire tests a precious metal and burns away all the dross. Our Heavenly Father is testing our faith, burning away all the evil that still clings to us so that in the end our faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus comes. And so we need to remember that our Heavenly Father's goal is to make us like his Son, to, to perfect us in the family likeness. And that means his goal for us is not first and foremost our health, is it? But our, hap- but, but our holiness. His goal for us is not first and foremost our prosperity, but our purity. His goal for us is not first and foremost our comfort, but our Christ-likeness. And so he leads us through trials and gives us strength to persevere in them and so refines us and perfects us to make us like his son so that we reflect the Father's likeness, holy as he is holy. A pastor friend of mine told me once about a time when his church was facing severe financial crisis and he was praying with his wife, massive budgeting issues in the church. Uh, Maybe he's going to lose his job because the church can't afford him anymore. They're praying away. He's praying, Father, please give us the money. Uh, His wife prayed, Father, please give us the money, but not until we're ready. (laughs) And they, Amen. He looks up, what are you praying? No, we need it now. But, but she got it, didn't she? That God's doing something through this, she said. God's doing something through you. Yes, pray for the provision of the need, but also don't miss what God is doing in you through the trial because his goal is first and foremost to perfect us, to make us like his son so that we bear the family likeness because we're his children. He tests our faith so that it may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus comes. Uh, One of my heroes, and I'll finish with this, is a guy called William Tyndale. I don't know if you know his name or not. Uh, He was the first guy to provide us with a full translation of the New Testament in English. Uh, He lived at the beginning of the Reformation in England uh, in the 16th century when there was severe opposition to the gospel, severe opposition to the true church. The the Bible was only available in Latin uh, and no one but the priests could read it and even then half the priests couldn't read it. Uh, And Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English but King Henry VIII wouldn't have it. A Bible that people could read was dangerous. It would cause sedition. And so he threatened anyone who would defy him with death and execution. But Tyndale had been given new birth. He'd heard the word of the gospel as a young man at Cambridge and he believed it. He had a living hope. He craved pure spiritual milk. And so he did the only natural thing. He learned Greek. And so he could read the New Testament in the original. He's <laughs> a man after my own heart. Uh, And he started translating the Bible, the New Testament, into English so that others could read it in a language they would understand. When King Henry found out, Tyndale fled from England to the continent. He fled for his life and he never came back. He spent the rest of his life on the run as an exile, you might say, as a stranger, as an alien in Germany and in France. Uh, But he didn't give way to fear. He didn't allow himself to be conformed to the world around him. No, he knew he'd been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from his fathers by the precious blood of Christ. He knew that God, his father, was also his judge. And so he lived out his time in exile in reverent fear. 
Not so much fear of the King of England, though I'm sure there was moments when he was terrified of that, but fear of the true King, his God and Heavenly Father. And so he persevered. He worked away in hidden locations and back rooms and printing shops until he published first in Dribs and Drabs and then in a complete volume, the first English New Testament. What a gift. That was 1526. If you open up your NIV today, still something like 75% of the words you read were given to us by William Tyndale. What a gift. We know the gospel through that in English. He went on to teach himself Hebrew. That's no mean feat. He made a good start on translating the Old Testament, translated the five books of Moses and Jonah before he was caught. And he was jailed in the castle at Philvord outside Brussels and he was convicted of heresy for translating the Bible. And on the 6th of October, 1536 or thereabouts, he was executed by strangulation and then burned for good measure. <laughs> his famous dying prayer was so very much like Jesus' dying prayer. It was a prayer for his persecutor, for his enemies, for the guy who'd sent him into exile. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Who knows whether Henry VIII's eyes were ever truly opened. I, I just don't know. But two years later, after Tyndale's death, Henry authorised an official English translation. <laughs> Largely based, guess what? On Tyndale's work. <laughs> How's the irony? There's a man in William Tyndale who lived as part of a church under fire, <laughs> literally, who met his end being burned at the stake. But there's also a man who knew the good news, who knew that this old world was against him, but that God had chosen him and given him new birth into a living hope. And so he craved pure spiritual milk. He clung on to the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. And he learned to reflect the family likeness, growing through persecution and trial to become in his death so beautifully like Jesus. I'm going to pray that God would do some of that work in us as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being born again into your family so that we can call on you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the living hope that you've given us through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And we pray that you would grow in us more and more a craving for your word, for the good news of the gospel. And that as we drink it in, you would grow us up and perfect us and straighten us out and make us more and more like Jesus. That you would be at work in us by your spirit so that we would more and more reflect the family likeness, that we would be holy as you are holy. And we pray that you would do that work in us as we set all our hope fully on the inheritance that is ours, that you promise us Jesus will bring when he comes. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Murray. Um, there is opportunity for some question time. We've got about five minutes or so. Um, so if someone got a question, I'll bring the mic out to you and uh, you can ask it so that those in the other rooms can hear us as well. Who'd like to go first? If there's a question here, I will... Uh... Uh, it's not actually... Uh, perhaps not an application, but I, I think it does have bearing when you look at who the recipient 
of a letter is, and there, there's a bit of controversy over who is or who are the recipients of this letter. Uh, if it's not written by Peter, it could be those who are driven from Jerusalem in 70 AD. If it is written by Peter, it could be written to a Gentile group. But you have put forward something that I hadn't heard, that it was those exiled from Rome. And I just wondered if you'd sort of expand on that and, and the relevance of that to the contents. Yeah, uh, th there is a lot of debate about this letter and uh, if I was lecturing I would have given you all the options and the pros and cons but I much prefer preaching because then I can just tell you the answer. <laughs> um, yes, so uh, th there are clues in the letter that um, it's written, I mean, it, it, it says it's written to people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Uh, and why those five places? Uh, we, we can't track Peter particularly uh, to any of those five in particular. Uh, and, but, but what we can track is Roman colonies established in those five places uh, in the first century uh, and we can track Jew Jews and Christians as a subset of the Jews expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius in the year AD 49. Uh, there's lots of good evidence for that. And we can track Peter in the city of Rome and so I'm putting all, all of that together uh, and saying uh, Jewish Christians expelled from Rome sent over to those places uh, under Claudius. Peter... Uh, having known them, uh, writing to them from Rome uh, towards the end of his life. And I think that's, that, that's a good reconstruction of the letter. It's, it's hard to be 100% certain about these things. I, I want to take the claim of the letter at face value. I, I know uh, people do dispute whether it's written by Peter, but it starts with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And um, for, for my money, that's enough uh, to take it as written by Peter. Uh, and, and therefore I want to locate it in his lifetime and therefore you go looking for what was going on in his lifetime that helps us make sense of this. Yep. Yeah, thank you very much for bringing this to us. You mentioned about our inheritance hmm. and how it's sure and it's, it's held for us until Christ's return. Hmm. Could you talk a bit about what that inheritance actually is? Hmm. Yeah, great, thank you. It, I, I'd say it's, as I tried to say, going across to 2 Peter 3, it's, it's life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the fullness of everything that God has promised us in his presence, that's the heart of it, uh, seeing God face to face, being in his presence, knowing life and fullness of joy with him. Uh, but Peter, and actually all across the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, speaks about it's not just us and God, but it's us in God's presence in a new heavens and a new earth. And so the inheritance is that life with God in the new world, uh, which is this old world cleansed and purified of all of sin and evil and death uh, and made new, restored and made whole. Uh, that's the inheritance. Uh, and so you, know, you could track an Old Testament um, trajectory there where God uh, tells Adam to fill the earth and then promises Abram that he'll have the promised land uh, but then promises Israel that their borders are going to expand. Uh, and so, so the promise, you track it all the way through the Old Testament, is, is for life with God in Eden, in the promised land, in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, where righteousness is at home. That, that's the inheritance, the richness of life in God's presence in the new world. Hi, Murray. Um, Hi, to what extent do you think... Uh, Peter wants us to think of ourselves as um, exiles in the world mm. uh, as opposed to 
um, sojourners or journeyers in the world on the way to something better. So exiles wanting, like, hoping to be freed uh, as opposed to on the way to the inheritance. Yeah. Yeah, like, what, what is our identity there? Should we think of ourselves as exile, exiles or... Yeah, in, in, a, in a way, I know there's some discussion about that. Uh, in a way, they're, they're both very similar. Uh, if I can help you think about it like this, the way I think about it would be exiles are longing to return to the homeland. Uh, sojourners or, or people on a journey are, are waiting to a, arrive at their destination. Uh, and so either way, it's an it's a intermediate state. It's a we're not there yet way of talking. Um, uh, and you might have heard, I've already mentioned this a little bit, Sometimes we've talked in the church about uh, we're on the way, we're sojourners to going somewhere better, we're to going to heaven. Uh, and this, this verse here in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, where our inheritance is kept in heaven, has sometimes led people to, to think that way, that we're just passing through. Even Colin Buchanan, who I love, and he's got great songs, he's got this song, do you know it? Passing through, passing through on the way to heaven. Uh, and I think that's, that's not the best way to think about it, uh, because the way Peter and the rest of the New Testament talks about it is, our inheritance is uh, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. So we're not passing through the world hoping to escape. Uh, we're passing through the world waiting for Jesus to return uh, and make everything new. So uh, exile or sojourner end up with the same kind of result, which is we're not there yet. We're, and so we're, uh, our identity is in the homeland uh, with the Father. That's where we belong uh, and we're longing for that day when Jesus will return uh, and make this world the way it's meant to be, and then we'll be home. Uh, that, that's the way I think about it. Yeah. Uh, Murray, I'd love you to comment on the phrase that Peter uses, uh, sprinkling with his blood, mm. sprinkled with his blood, the, the um, background of that as you understand it. Yeah, so I mean, that's uh, got background in the Old Testament sacrificial system, isn't it? Uh, where things were consecrated uh, or made holy, uh, to be able to stand in God's presence. Uh, you see that in Leviticus, uh, that uh, the things that the holy things that belong in the temple, of the tabernacle or the temple, uh, where God dwells with his people, they need to be consecrated or sanctified. Uh, and the way they were sanctified in the Old Testament uh, context was by sprinkling with the blood of a sacrificial animal. And so you're right, it's a beautiful image, uh, and thanks for drawing our attention to us, to it of we who have been sprinkled with Jesus' blood, the perfect sacrifice, and therefore been made clean, been made holy, and fit to stand in God's presence. Uh, that we're, we're able to, to, uh, to be with God without fear and without shame, not because of our own merits, but because of what Jesus has done through his death on the cross, by which he washes us clean and, and sanctifies us, makes us holy.